You've hit play on the Screen Companion, a show about making your viewing time count. <laughs> Budgets don't always have a proportional relationship to quality. Doctor Strange 2, Eternals, Fast and Furious 9, all in the 200 million range. I'm not saying they're all terrible movies, but how many people out there would say all of them are good? Let's remind ourselves that money doesn't always equal value by celebrating low-budget flicks. In this episode, curator, director, editor, and artist Ian helps me extol the story and craft in the films Cube and Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Welcome back to the show, Ian. Hey, thanks for having me back. I'm excited to jump into these. So the crux of the matter is budgets. Low-budget production specifically, it's one of the reasons I was really happy to get you on this episode. You have a lot of experience with low-budget slash no-budget productions, I imagine. Many. And you've had an interest in this stuff for years now, so between amateur and professional experience, it's just coming out the wazoo for you. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. It's been, I guess, over half my life now, or well over that at this point. Most of them were no budget. I've been lucky enough to get some budgets recently, but still not. Not Marvel budgets. You've been directly involved in getting financing for some of your stuff? Um, not as much as my producers, but yes, I have. What about it would you say surprised you the most considering all the directing experience you had once you had to start to think like a producer? What was uh, off about it to you? For my last short, I had a decent-sized budget. That I was a little bit more hands-on with the producer. And yeah, it would be questions like, oh, do you need to shoot this part outside at night, let's say? It's like, oh, well, I'm seeing that this is going to add this much budget. Do you need this? Do you need that? If I was doing a no-budget thing, the whole thing looks gritty, and you know, we're shooting with a lot of natural light to begin with. That becomes the aesthetic for the film. When I didn't have a budget, I didn't have to make that decision. I was like, well, that's already the look of the movies. Given whatever money I have, we can do whatever we want. Now it's like, it all has to have this polished look. You know, we're shooting with like a red camera. We can't have one scene of amazing lighting and then another one not. So as a writer, you want to be like, well, all of these are important. But then you start going through it and be like, do I really want to sink all my budget into this tiny scene that's going to cost this much and might sacrifice some other things? So, yeah, I think as we'll go into the limitations end up being a great thing for filmmaking. Yeah, they can be in certain situations. When the budget shrinks... What do you feel like is the first thing to go? Probably first thing to go is scenes that are going to require more lighting. Easiest example is, does this scene need to take place at night? Can't they have this conversation outside in the sunlight? Because that immediately is going to cut down on budget. And the shooting schedule, right? Yeah, shooting schedule will be easier. You're not going to have to have people working all night, possibly having to pay overtime. But it's really the fact that you won't have to rent a generator, especially if you're shooting outside at night. It can be very difficult, very expensive to light an entire street. Second biggest thing to go is locations. Oh, do, does this need to take place in a bank? 
or you have characters having a conversation in a restaurant. Like, can they do this at one of their houses? Definitely with both of our picks here, location is a main reason they were able to stretch the budgets because they kept the whole thing in one location. Because once you start moving around locations, then you have the obstacle of moving the crew, just transportation costs, and then you have time being eaten up. You're not shooting when you're traveling somewhere. Those things go first, I think. For a lot of other films, like independent Hollywood things, the first thing probably to go is more expensive cast. Do we really need this guy from Game of Thrones to be in this? We can get somebody else that's going to do it for a tenth of the cost. When you look at a budget, any line items that tick you off a bit, you look at it and you shake your head and you go, you know, I wish we didn't need this, or why does this have to be part of the process? Definitely lenses are annoyingly expensive. And you'll be constantly asked, do we need to have this lens or that lens? Other things like the electrical stuff, something before I would just think whatever location I pick, we can just shoot in there. And they're like, well, the wattage of this building is nowhere near what we need. So we're going to need to hire a generator. Generators are like these very heavy things. Sometimes they're very large. And then you've got wiring now going through. I generally like having long kind of shots where you have the characters entering the space and then going and sitting down wherever they are, you know, all in one shot. And now it's like, okay, we've got to hide wires. The building, we couldn't just plug in our lights in there. So I would say that is uh, something that really kind of blew me away when I first got a budget. We actually had a couple of scenes at the beginning where I was like, oh, I think it should be fine. And then one minute into shooting, we shored out the entire building. And now we have to get electricity from the next building across. So that's something you would just love to have a magic button you could press and solve that problem. Oh, man, yes. You see all these drone cameras. I would love to have maybe some drone lights, extremely bright lights that just float around and just go exactly wherever you need them and don't make any noise. <laughs> I'm waiting for that innovation. I think the insurance rates would go up on the actual production because <laughs> these drones are flying around, hooked up to wires, and they accidentally get wrapped around people's necks as they're going along and strangling people. <laughs> well, yeah, that and a lot of the lights are extremely hot. So you have like burning hot things whizzing around. There's some kinks we got to work out, but I think you and our listenership here, we can all work together and make some money. You know, hit me up. Let's jump into tonight's first movie, which is Cube from 1997. No, it's not a biography about O'Shea Jackson. It's a plot where a group of people wake up in a room surrounded by other rooms that define the interior of a giant geometric object. Not only have they been brought there against their wills, but many of the rooms are booby-trapped, making their single goal, escape, especially stressful. Ian, how do you think the low budget manifests itself in terms of the presentation? I think it was kind of an ingenious thing on their part to have this lighting element that each room just is defined by it being lit differently. I'm sure they shot it all in the same room that the entire movie takes place in these cubes, which are basically identical, but the way that they make them not identical is just to change the lighting. So it's like a blue room, then a red room, then a green room. They made that so much a part of the plot that it works. It doesn't feel like a cop-out. It feels like that's actually an intentional thing. 
adds to the claustrophobia that they just want to get out. There are moments where they're able to look out at these different kind of spaces, but they're very rare. And when they happen, it's really satisfying for both the characters and the audience because you find they're like, ah, oh, it's not the same room again. Wow, great. Just a black expanse even. And it's a breather. If they tried to shoot this with different rooms, different locations, they would have run out of the budget immediately, I'm sure. This movie and the next one we'll talk about are both in terms of 2022 dollars. They were made for less than a million in the uh, 600 to 800,000 range. That would be deemed a micro budget now, not even low budget, micro budget. One aspect of this low budget that I noticed immediately, and it didn't bother me, but I wanted to look it up after I saw it. The use of a minimalist score. There's no licensed music in this. And when I looked up the soundtrack, it only has five compositions on it. Oh, I didn't notice that. That will save budget right there, not having any licensed music. The composer, I imagine, was not somebody that you recognized. Not immediately, but then I looked at the other stuff he had done, and he's actually worked pretty regularly since then. I believe he scored The Witch. Oh, wow. That was a great soundtrack. Okay. That fits in perfectly with the tone of the movie being abstract and surreal, and how there are a lot of details in the plot. They never explicitly say one way or the other, why are they there, who created the cube. Early on, somebody says it might be aliens. Yeah, or it's the government, kind of vague. While they don't give us a definitive answer, they at least have the characters ask those questions. Because I hate movies where some fantastical thing happens and nobody is questioning it. They're just moving along with the plot. Why doesn't somebody ask somebody else to explain what's going on? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I think a lot of that gets cut out from films. I felt like they could use a lot more time of being just disoriented at the beginning. When they're waking up, it's pretty quickly that the characters start springing into action. I woke up in a room, I think it would take about a half an hour at least before we do anything. Just everyone's like, how the fuck did we get here? If you just woke up in a room that you aren't supposed to be in, I think you'd just start screaming and freaking out. They still do touch on it. If they hadn't at all, that would have really irked me. I really felt what you're talking about with the character Levin, played by Nicole DeBoer the smart girl in this scenario. When the movie starts, she looks completely traumatized. And then I feel like they say a couple of words at her and she's like, okay, I'll get up and do something now. (laughs) Yeah, I'm the character with glasses. I am clearly the smart one that's going to solve how to get out of here. I mean, there's just this line of, I'm a doctor, like right at the beginning. And then another character's like, I'm a cop. And then within like a minute, (laughs) he's like, So, what's your thing? (laughs) Suddenly, they decide, oh, we got a doctor here and a cop here, so everyone clearly has some specific purpose. What's your purpose? (laughs) And there's this other thing which I wanted to get into. Referring to each other by their names happens very quickly. If I just met somebody, especially in a situation like this, I'm not sure I would remember their name. But this is something I've seen in student films and independent films and spec scripts. 
it's like an endemic thing to low budget films that people want to have characters refer to each other by their names. And I think it has something to do with the writer and the actors and the film crew. They want to make this feel like a real world. And we want each character to be specific. So if we just have them say their names, they already feel like a real character. Mm -hmm. So everything's like, Holloway, can you do this? Levin, can you do this? And then, no, Holloway. (laughs) Yo, it's like, you guys friends? You literally just met. Nobody says each other's names like this. Would you say there are any parts of this film that really suffer from the lack of a budget? Yeah. I would say definitely the character Quentin, that actor, was he a big actor at that time or this was a up-and-coming actor? I don't believe any of them were established names. I think the whole cast was Canadian. It was a Canadian production. A couple of them did find some television stardom within a couple years after this came out, but I don't think while they were filming it, any of them was notable. Something that suffered was the casting. This guy that plays Quentin is just... He's pretty broad. Yeah, not good. (laughs) (laughs) So something shocking is supposed to be happening, and they cut to a close-up of this guy, and it's like, oh my god, that's the take you went with? (laughs) It stank of this is their first movie, and they're on a film set, and they're just so excited to be there, and they're all overdoing their characters. The calling each other by their names thing is a lot of the times what first-time actors will do. They like referring to each other as each other's names. They just find that so fun. Oh, even if it's not in the script, they'll add that? Yeah, all the time. I have to keep yelling cut and be like, stop saying each other's names. Why are you guys doing this? (laughs) And I realize they just enjoy it because they've met on the set before and been like, wow, so cool, we're in a movie. And then it's like action. Oh, we're our characters now. Pass me the wrench, Max. (laughs) You don't need to say his name. Anything else that was detrimental because of the budget? I could have used more traps. The movie starts with probably the most famous part of the film, which has been recreated so many times, where you have this character getting cut by this, like, grid, this wire grid. You don't even know what happens at first. This guy's just standing there, and you just hear this loud noise, and then he starts splitting apart. Cut into tofu. He's like a Jenga tower. (laughs) That was very unique. And I was hoping for more traps. Because once they figure out how to solve this situation, you don't get to see them anymore. I don't know if they ran out of ideas as well. It's like, okay, we're going to have fire in this one. And then we're going to have these spike things. That was pretty cool. Could have used a little bit more of that. Maybe they could have had a few more characters just so we could have had a few more creative or visual death scenes going on. At a certain point, the cube just doesn't feel very threatening. Absolutely. Once they decide this code that they crack, the horror element of it is lost. They have this strategy of throwing a boot in a room to see if it has a trap. An option that would have been more interesting to get more thrills slowly dangle a person in the room to see if there's a trap and if there is they can pull them back that way you could have had like scares happening like they almost get crushed by something or there's an over-reliance on the boot they just decide the boot is the only thing they have other clothing which if people start taking off clothes it would have started to go in another direction which also might have been interesting you know (laughs) 
Some of the dialogue scenes didn't quite hit the spot for me, and I feel like it just would have been better if it didn't happen. This movie, which is about 90 minutes long, maybe cut 10 minutes out of it. Yeah, especially in the second half of the film. Yeah, right. Some things that happen right near the end where suddenly the characters all need to go into these diatribes, and it's just like, oh my god, go out the door. What are you doing? <laughs> just shut up and get out we haven't touched on probably what i found to be the most cringy element of this film was the mentally handicapped character kazan it was so cliche stereotypical i'm playing a mentally disabled person and then also whenever the other characters are talking and cut away to him he suddenly has dropped the entire act and he's just looking around like he's not mentally handicapped it comes and goes. Seems like the movie's telling you there's something off with this guy. It felt like the movie was telling you that that was the case. But later on, you find out, no, okay, actually, he's supposed to be handicapped. In which case, it was just, oh, my God, this is not aged well at all. <laughs> with all our criticisms, though, why do you think people should check it out? This kind of thing has been done many times since, and I think it was one of the first to do it to have this limited cast stuck in more or less a single location and having that be such a part of the plot that it doesn't feel like a budget constraint. But definitely a clear example is the first Saw movie. This is something that you should watch just to see where a lot of these tropes came from. It's the best TV movie I saw on the Sci-Fi channel growing up. <laughs> <laughs> That was how I first watched this movie. It was never from the beginning. So I'd always see these different parts of the movie. And so that's what I found really interesting about it. That's exactly how I saw it too. <laughs> it was actually better in that way. The characters feel a little bit more real because you don't know what you've missed out on. It was kind of better out of sequence and with less context. Try watching the last 20 minutes first. Yeah. yeah. Then watch the first 10, then watch the middle part. <laughs> Do like a Pulp Fiction edit version of the movie. Well, moving on to our second movie. Yes. Which is Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Yes. From 1974. You might know this is Ian's pick from his adulation. Tell us a little bit about the plot. I want to say it was one of the first movies to do this plot of the quintessential city teens going to a rural area and not quite getting along with the locals, putting it lightly. There's nothing supernatural. It is just a mindless killing spree that mimics more of what happens in real life, and it shows the horrors that humans are capable of. Yeah, the killers in your backyard. Which is scarier in a lot of ways just because it could happen. And it is very loosely based on some true stories. No one's going to suddenly turn into an alien and attack me. But this actually could happen. That's the scariest thing about it. How old were you the first time you saw this? I actually saw it much later than I think a lot of people... I think a lot of people saw this way too early, you know, when they were kids. When I first saw it, I think I was already in college, so I was probably maybe 19, 20 years old. Texas Chainsaw Massacre, I was like, I don't really want to just watch a bloodbath. But I had a friend that actually liked good movies. 
oh my God, you've never seen that? Like, how have you not seen that? So I watched it and I was really shocked and I couldn't believe I was actually getting legitimately scared by a movie that was made in the 70s. As the movie was going, I was like, I can't believe audiences watched this back in the 70s. This must have been traumatizing to them. And it would have been interesting to see this on a big screen. Oh my God, it would have been amazing. This one, I thought we would actually get into some of the scenes themselves that illustrate the low-budget feel of this movie. Let's start with the opening van scene. What about it says low-budget to you? At this time, feature films, they're going to be shot on much larger cameras. This movie, I believe, was shot in 16mm on a Bolex, which is a very small camera. You're actually in a van with these characters, and it has this kind of almost home movie vibe. Because it's on 16, it's much grainier than most movies at that time would look. These characters are talking back and forth, and the camera's cutting back and forth as if we're sitting in the van. And to have the movie start in that way, it adds this authenticity and this feeling of like, you know that it's not a documentary, but you've already broken the expectations of a film at that point. So anything that happens afterwards has started with this gritty kind of reality that most movies even today don't really have. There's a similarity between this and the pick that you served up last episode that you were on, Rosemary's Baby. You say gritty realism. I would say painfully mundane. (laughs) Okay. In the moment, I'm a little bored. I'm a little checked out. However, to its benefit, and I think it serves the same function it does in Rosemary's Baby, is that when you get to the point where you just feel like, God, I wish something would happen. Oh, it happens. Because it was so mundane leading up to it and really didn't feel like a story that was really happening, there's really no thrust to any of that van stuff at the beginning. When the crazy crap happens, you go, oh, I believe in this more because it felt like I've been in a totally real world up to this point. Ultimately, I think the way it plays out at the beginning works very much in its favor. And this is something that most films don't do anymore. The pacing is just so important. Setting up expectations and setting the reality before things happen. And if they just started the movie with a murder, it would completely lose its power. The only reason that first scare is so effective is because there's been such a long lead up to it. By the time that it happens, you're actually surprised that it's happening. I would call it like a roller coaster plot, but not the kind of roller coaster that starts with lots of loops, but the long click, click, click going all the way up that takes most of the ride. And then suddenly this release, now it's down, loops, 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 and it's over. You know, that's the kind of movie that I like. And this movie definitely is that. The next scene to talk about is Pam, one of our van people. (laughs) She's entering what's ultimately the murder house. Talk about that scene and aspects of it that feel low budget to you. Obviously, the lighting, once they go inside the house, is quite dark. And I think at that time, people would not light in that way intentionally. I think the darkness of certain hallways in the back... Normally now they would be like, oh, we should have some kind of fill light in there so we get more depth to the frame. But it's actually much better that it's just this grainy black in the background. But I'd say the main thing that I loved about the budget was the set design. She's going into this house looking for one of our other characters. And she kind of slips and falls in this room. And she starts looking around. And the floor is just covered in chicken feathers. Which, on its face, aren't exactly scary. You wouldn't be like, oh my god, there's chicken feathers in that room. I don't want to go in there, you know? Mm. 
because the floor is covered in these feathers, there's just something very specific and creepy about it. It's just off. Before she even goes in there, there's like a shot of a tree that just has pots and pans hanging. And it's like pots and pans aren't scary on their own, but there's something about the specificity of dangling on this tree, kind of like wind chimes. That's just so strange. Really specific choices that I'm sure were because they only had so many props that they could make. It just made me feel gross in a way that I wasn't expecting. On all the simple tools, literal nuts and bolts that are just strewn about this room, this place is off-putting. There's a chicken in the room. A live chicken as well, yeah. But then the way they used it to decorate the set was a really good use of cheap items. If you look at the Conjuring series, it's like the second these characters get in, it's just so clearly this quintessential haunted house. If you were actually to walk in that house, you would just laugh. You'd be like, well, all right, someone really likes horror movies. So many movies have tried to recreate this with larger budgets, but they went too far in that way as well, where it doesn't feel believable anymore. This has just enough that it feels like a very real place that people could live. And I think it has to do with the budget constraints. Do you think there are any parts of the film that actually suffer from the lack of a budget? I would say the main thing would be the character of the grandpa, without giving too much away, but the grandpa, the prosthetics used there. If you go back to other movies that were coming out at this time, I know David Cronenberg had already come out with some stuff. They definitely could have used a better prosthetic makeup person for that. I feel like you and I could recreate the grandpa character in this movie by just going to Spirit Halloween. <laughs> that always kind of bums me out a little because I do show this movie to people and I tell them how well it's aged. And when that character comes out, I have to shrug like, well, they didn't have much of a budget. Since I'm not especially into horror movies, I do like the restraint they showed in the way people got dispatched. Nothing was very gory. Toby Hooper, the director, thought if he didn't show explicit stuff, that he could avoid an R rating. There's no way in hell you're going to avoid an R rating with the subject matter. I saw an interview with him about this, and he was trying to go for a PG rating on this. This is just like, are you serious? Even in the 70s, that wasn't going to fly. Everyone goes back to Hitchcock for this, but it's the fact that, you know, in Psycho, you don't see the knife going in. You can feel it in your head. When your imagination completes the shot, that's actually where the scare is. Just showing straight-up violence, close-ups of a knife going into skin is gross. It is not scary. It's much scarier when it's in your brain. I would have liked... Just one centerpiece gore effect. Just give me one really nice gory makeup effect. Let me see the top of somebody's head get lopped off. Just something. I'd like to get into the POV a little bit more of these victims. And if you never see any real gore, it really separates me from the characters in the movie. I'd just like to have that connect at one point where I'm seeing it as gory as they are seeing it, you know? I'm really surprised to hear you say that. That's great for me to hear you say, because I know how much you hate gore and horror. So wow, I really feel like you're, you're coming over to my side. <laughs> One thing I'll say about that, though, is so many of the deaths in this movie happen so fast. When you're with these characters, they don't know that this is going to happen. Before the knock comes on the door, I'm not going to cut to a close-up of the door. Right. I'm not going to show that the cameraman knows someone's going to enter the room. 
And I think this movie, it's a reactive cameraman. So someone's going in this room, looking around, and then suddenly the guy's coming out of nowhere and the death is already there and the camera guy didn't have time. It almost feels like they didn't know it was going to happen. Yeah, I know what you're saying, but I think actually cutting into close-ups of things would have made all the violence that happens very sporadically in this film be a little bit more planned feeling. What I would say, though, is maybe later on in the film, once we know what's going on, then maybe that would have been a good opportunity to show a little bit more on-screen gore. Later on, that might have been a little bit more effective. So in the dinner scene that happens later in the movie at the house, if they threw more money at that scene, you'd probably just use it to fix up Grandpa's makeup? Yeah. What I love about that scene is it goes way more into the psychological horror. Once you've seen some on-screen deaths, to then be scared by the psychology of this family. They're all laughing and mimicking one of the characters who's screaming, and they're all just mocking them. And I found that, especially the first time I watched it, I was chilled by that. I was not expecting the movie to go into that kind of psychological scare. There's a very different scare that happens when it's like the character's running and this guy's chasing them. I don't want them to die. That's a very different kind of scare than just, oh, look how messed up these people are. The fact that this is their lifestyle. That's probably my favorite scene in the film. That's the scene with the extreme close-ups of the eyeball, right? It goes into POV at that point. I don't think that we've gotten much POV before that. That might be the first one. I'm not sure. So you're getting close-ups of your character that's in that scene, and then you're getting their POV. So this family is looking directly at you and like laughing. It really puts you in the scene. It really hits home. Probably the scariest scene in the film. If I were to point to something that they might use a bigger budget on, the people in the van, I don't know if it would have made it a heck of a lot better, but I would like to see a version of it where we might see a few scenes before they take the trip, just to establish a little bit more of the characters themselves. The only thing I really got out of those opening moments, besides what we already discussed, is that Franklin, the guy in the wheelchair, establishes pretty quickly that he is so annoying. <laughs> he's so whiny. He's not somebody you want on a trip with you. And they kind of try to establish that one of these other characters is mystical and really into astrology. But the three other characters other than Franklin and that girl don't really, they're just kind of your typical normal whatever. They don't really establish any specific character traits. I love, though, that they made Franklin this very unlikable character. A lot of the times when you have a disabled character, they go over and above to try to make them this overly lovable and smart. It's like the movie's trying to say, oh, look how amazing disabled people are. And they think that they're doing that for a good reason, but actually it's just demeaning and not making the character feel like a real person. And the fact that, yes, he's in a wheelchair, but he also is just annoying as hell and everyone just can't stand him. Such a refreshing take. One, he's very unlikable, but you don't want to see anything bad happen to him. Because he's so specific, you still are really hoping that he's going to make it out. It's all very grounded, and while I wouldn't want to be there listening to him complain, most of the stuff he complains about is pretty valid. Like at one point, the two couples have just left him by himself. Yeah. And he's complaining about that. I would say that too. I'd be like, what the hell? Nobody's hanging out with me. I felt so bad for him. 
it keeps cutting away to what they're doing. And I'm like, is someone going to go get Franklin? Like, what is wrong with you people? <laughs> but at the same time, you're with them and you're just like, oh, they're always with him. And yeah, he is really annoying. It's like they need a break from him. Franklin serves as the only interpersonal conflict among those characters. So he's very important to the plot. Mostly, you're right. He is the catalyst. Probably could have used a little bit more of that. Do you have any other favorite moments in this? One other thing I definitely wanted to mention was the first kills happening during daylight. I find so often horror movies feel like every kill has to happen at nighttime. But I find that daylight kills when it's a beautiful day out and something messed up happens, that is much more chilling. I want to point out my favorite, not even scene, but just shot that was really impactful and made me love the craft of filmmaking. When Pam is walking up to the house, it's a low angle shot. It starts with her sitting on a swing. Oh, yes. And she gets a sense that something's a foul. And she gets up, and it's just this beautiful tracking shot. I rewatched it before we got on the air. It makes sense you said it was a smaller camera, because the camera actually fits under the swing and doesn't interrupt the shot. And then it just keeps tracking with her as she walks toward the house. And you got that foreboding giant house staring down at her because of the low angle. And it was just beautifully crafted. It was, to me, like the best 10 seconds of the movie. That's great that you are pointing that out. That is just a genius shot. The timing of when that shot happens and that it cuts to that low angle is because there is another character death that has just happened. And the movie has now suddenly switched gears. When the first kill is happening, it's like the camera guy doesn't know what's going to happen. And suddenly it's out of nowhere. And now we get this other character going to check in on them. And now we know what's coming. And this low angle just fits that tone perfectly. And that foreboding suddenly comes in. It's the camera's feeling exactly how we're feeling. Being like, don't go in the house. Don't go in the house. That's probably the most aesthetically beautiful shot in the film, yeah. I realized we really didn't talk much about Leatherface. Ian, tell me what you think of him as a villain. So in this one, he is a really interesting villain. Obviously, just looking at him, he's terrifying. He's this massive dude with this gross, like, skin mask. But they really play with his psychology, where he's the most physically dominant-looking character, but he's the most submissive. When all these teenagers are coming to his house, he almost looks like he's scared. He's going around killing them like you would if you came home to your apartment and there's cockroaches everywhere. They certainly startled him. And then, like, later on when you see how he fits into this family, they're all kind of abusing him and talking about how he's an idiot. Because he feels like a real character, he's not just this, I love to kill, I am programmed to kill, killer. You don't know what's making him tick. It makes it so much more interesting. Generally, it's like the more you don't know, the scarier it is. But I found this to be an exception to that. I like my monsters to have at least a little bit of something filling in their background so it's not just 100% mystique. And what I liked about Leatherface, you're not quite sure how much of what he's doing is nature and how much of it is nurture because of his messed up family. 
near the end, you start to feel for this character. Like, this character definitely should be getting professional help and probably wouldn't be murdering anybody. Sometimes when you see those bad guys that just flat out state, I'm evil because I want the money, or I'm evil because you cheated on me, it just flattens them to some extent. So it's nice to have that maybe he's evil, maybe he's just mentally disturbed. And you get to play with that as the audience member. There are some things that are definitely torture that happen, but it's also not clear whether or not this character sees that as torture or not. You don't know what's going through his mind, and that's what's scary about it. Let us move on to the final segment of our show, which is TLDL, Too Long Didn't Listen, where I'm going to ask you a series of questions, and I want very short answers. Okay. Is Cube more science fiction or horror? Science fiction. Is the acting better in Cube or Texas Chainsaw? Texas Chainsaw. Is the production design better in Cube or Chainsaw? Texas Chainsaw. Which movie do you think plays the best in 2022? (laughs) I think you know what I'm going to say. Yes, Texas Chainsaw. (laughs) Which movie do you think is a better example of doing more with less? Uh, Let me remind you that adjusted for inflation, Cube cost at least 100 grand less than Chainsaw, okay? Really? It was the cheaper of these two movies. I guess in that case, I gotta say Cube, then. Huh. Finally. (laughs) Who's a better protagonist, the lone survivor from Texas Chainsaw or Levin from Cube? Oh my god, lone survivor from Texas Chainsaw, hands down. Okay, now here's where I'm throwing you a curveball. You're forced to choose Leatherface's next victim. Do you pick Kazan or Franklin? Hmm. Kazan. (laughs) Yeah. Well, at least I got you to pick the cube one, even though that's actually more of a diss. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I just really heavily disliked that character, so I would be totally fine with Leatherface. You know, he needs new masks. I have one more question for you. I know that you hadn't seen this film. Uh Uh-huh. Did you watch it alone? Yes, I did. Did you watch it at night? No, I watched it during the day, but with the curtain drawn. Did the film scare you? At any point, did you get a legitimate scare? That's kind of tough. I was with the movie all the way through. But to scare me, that's pretty rare. And my mind treated it like a drama. Okay. In that, as our character that manages to survive all this, as they're being chased and as they're going to dinner with these freaks, that character was tugging at my heartstrings in a couple scenes. Sure. Just because of the situation, they're so pathetic and it's really sad. And I'd expect more violin playing than anything else. (laughs) And I'm not making fun of it. Those are the moments that drew me in and I liked it. Right. But genuinely scared? No. Even a jump here and there, maybe? A kind of a, whoa, jump scare type thing? Moment of shock? No? No, not that it comes to mind. You're a tough cookie. Well, 
tough cookie, cold fish. <laughs> People have different ways of describing me. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, I think for your listeners out there, this is a movie that still does hold up. I was legitimately disturbed by some things in this. Yeah, I agree with that. I was disturbed. You were disturbed? Okay, okay. At least you were disturbed. That's good. I was disturbed, yes. <laughs> All right. I think what you're really asking, Ian, because you suggested this movie, even though you're half a world away from me, were you able to make me uncomfortable? The answer is yes. Great. I'm glad. This is the purpose I serve on this earth. <laughs>